Well, good morning. It's great to see you all here this morning. If it's your very first time here at Connect, my name's Dave. I'm the lead pastor. And whether it's your first time or your 101st time, let me just say well done for making it here at 10.30 because our bodies are telling us it's only 9.30. And uh, you, you got here with the time change. You still made it. Uh, you got your cup of coffee to help kind of kickstart your morning. It's a great job. Um, you know, if you've been coming here a while, you'll know that we as a church, we, we don't think of ourselves as just a group of people who meet here on a Sunday morning. We believe that God called us as a church to be planted in this community, to reach this community. So we see all the people who, who call Washington their home part of our church that we're reaching out to and, and the surrounding areas. So, so we're very uh, focused here on Washington as a church, but... Today, we are going to celebrate with some of our neighbors across the way, some of our Metamora families who are here today. Great job, Metamora High School Basketball State Champions. And then we got lots of people who uh, join us from Metamora, so we are uh, thrilled for your community today. We, uh, we're not normally fans, but today we're celebrating with you. That was a great win. Uh, my family and I were out for dinner last night, and uh, the game was on the TV in the restaurant. I couldn't work out why everyone was watching this, this game. They seemed really involved in this game, and then I realized what the game was, and my family, we kind of dialed in. It was an exciting finish, so yay, Metamora. That's the first and last time you've heard me say that this year. So well done. Good job, Minamara. <laughs> so, um, you know, I discovered this week that there was a study done about three or four years ago at Ohio State University by a group of neuroscientists, and they were studying the brain and trying to figure out more about how it works and which parts of it do, do which parts of our um, thinking. And they, they came up with this conclusion that there are two uh, learning processes that are happening all the time in our brains. One is probabilistic learning. Uh, the other is pattern learning. So, so throughout our days, in our subconscious, unbeknownst to us, our brain is, is doing probabilistic learning and pattern learning. In the study, they were watching people's brains using an MRI machine to see which parts of the brains were engaged during the probabilistic learning, which parts were engaged during the pattern learning. And what they knew was that the reason the brain does this, and I'll explain in more detail in a minute what this is, but the reason it does this is because the brain is always trying to be more efficient. If there is a shortcut the brain can take, if there is a way to, to work faster and more efficiently, it will. So all the time, you and I, our brains are, are looking for these shortcuts, creating these um, more efficient pathways. And, and one of the ways the brain does that is through probabilistic learning. It's learning that the odds um, from experiences that have happened likely repeating themselves, and it's storing that information. So, for example, the last three times I touched this metal handle, I got a static shock. So as I reach my hand out, the next time my brain has already figured out, hey, that's going to happen again. So now it's telling my hands to just go easy, be careful, get ready to scream like a little girl. When you touch it, it's going to shock you again, okay? All this is happening because my probabilistic uh, brain has figured out this, this will probably happen again. Now, in pattern learning, your brain is always looking for patterns, it's looking for patterns in, in, in our environment all around us, and, uh, and it's capturing them and helping create shortcuts there as well. So you might be in an, uh, uh, an unfamiliar environment looking for directions to get somewhere, and uh, the person starts to tell you to turn left here, go down this street, and it kind of all sounds a bit confusing. But then your brain picks up on the fact that they're saying, well, you turn left, then right, then left, then right, and you're like, hey, there's a pattern, and it's easier to remember. And what's happening is your brain is looking for these shortcuts and forming what we call narratives. 
Your brain is writing stories. It's where our assumptions come from. Based on the probable outcome or based on patterns, your brain is forming these stories and these narratives so that it can work faster in the future when you're presented with a situation. So for example, here's some examples. You may uh, meet a dog like this one day. You encounter a dog like this. You've encountered enough dogs like this at places like Build-A-Bear, and uh, you realize, okay, this dog is a nice dog. I want to pet that dog. He looks like a friendly, happy dog. This is actually my dog. Crazy story. I remember standing on this stage not too long ago saying, I just don't get people who have dogs. Dogs are crazy. Dogs are dumb. And then we got a dog. And now I get it. <laughs> this is that dog. As I said, we got him at Build-A-Bear. He, uh, he's very fluffy, very cuddly, very friendly. And when people see my dog, they instantly kind of want to pet him because their assumption is he's a, he's a good, friendly dog. Now, you may see a dog like this. Different assumption. Different narrative in your brain. Your brain doesn't need to be told what to do in this situation. Your brain is automatically saying, cross the street, stay back, get away. Now, I do want to apologize to any German shepherd owners in the room this morning. Someone after first service said, I have a German shepherd. He's lovely, and I'm sure they're lovely, but sometimes when their teeth are showing like this, your brain's going to tell you pretty quickly, stay back. Here's another idea. What about if you saw a picture of something like this? Many of us see this steak dinner and instantly, I mean, we're getting close enough to lunchtime now that it's like, man, I'm starting to feel hungry. My mouth is actually watering a bit. Just looking at that picture. Because my brain has formed this narrative that steak and fries, that's good. Now, alternatively, you may see this picture. That's broccoli and Brussels sprouts. The two worst things known to mankind together on one plate, Okay. Now, the narrative my brain anyway has formed is like kind of a gag reflex. I'm not even going to turn around and look at it. And I recognize there are some of you this morning that you're seeing that picture and your mouths are starting to water because your narrative is like, hmm, that was good. Now, you're weird, but I get it, okay? That's, that's, that's a different narrative. And our brains, they form these shortcuts because different things from our experience from patterns, from probability, they, they create these, these narratives, these learning patterns. And I'm always amazed at how quickly the brain moves. Like sometimes before the sentence is even finished, your brain is telling you how to process this, this information. You could come up to me today after church and say, hey, I have these Keith Urban, and before you're even finished, in my head is going, nope. <laughs> Nope, don't want it. I mean, I don't even know what you've got. It could be concert tickets. It could be I've got some CDs I'm giving away. It could be I've got a pair of socks with Keith Urban's face on. I don't want it, okay? I don't even know what you've got, but my brain has already, because of the narrative it stored, kicked in and said, don't like country music, don't want them. And yes, Keith Urban socks are a thing. <laughs> Scary, isn't it? You know, here at Connect for the last few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of emotionally healthy relationships. Emotionally healthy relationships. Whether you are a follower of Jesus this morning or whether you're still kind of exploring, searching, every one of us here this morning have one thing in common, and that is that we have relationships in our life. It could be our friends that we go to school with. It could be other kids that we go to school with. It could be our neighbor. It could be relatives, your spouse, your parents, your kids, your uncles, your aunts. We've all got these relationships that we do life with. And not all relationships are easy because we're all different. So we have to kind of navigate this, this, this tricky pathway of how do we have emotionally healthy relationships with the people in our lives? And you know, this morning, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, 
we also have kind of this, this predetermined challenge because Jesus, um, the founder of our faith, listen to what he said one day about relating to one another. He was talking to his disciples, and in John 13, 34 through 35, he said, I'm giving you a new commandment. He said, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another, your relationships with one another, will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus is saying this is what the church is supposed to be famous for. The way you relate to one another, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers. Because as followers of Jesus, we should look different than those who don't follow Jesus because we have a higher standard, a standard that Jesus himself set. This is how people in our community should know that there is a church because there are a group of people who love one another really, really well. So we've been looking at these ideas of, of how can we help strengthen these relationships in our lives. And we've talked about one of the ways is that we can be very conscious or aware of the ways that we speak to each other. The way that we speak to each other can, can affect our relationships. The conflicts we have with each other. Last week, we talked about the conflicts that we have with each other and how we can navigate them and work through them. And today, I want to focus on the narratives that we tell about one another. The narratives that we tell ourselves, the narratives that our brain tells about each other. Because like I said earlier, to make things easier, our brains, they form these narratives, these stories of things like the cuteness or the danger of dogs or the cuteness or the danger of country music singers. Um, but when it comes to relationships, just like with other things, our brains naturally try to make shortcuts for understanding other people. Our brains are hardwired to, to create these, these neuropathways, these shortcuts, so we can qu more quickly figure people out in our lives. It's, it's almost like we have these set of cue cards these, these mental cue cards that we keep in a filing cabinet in our minds. And, and, and every time we meet someone, um, there are some talking points on our cue cards that tell us things about the different types of people we've observed in the world. And we pull up one of these cue cards when, when one of those people comes along. I mean, think about it. Maybe you've done this. Maybe you're into the Enneagram and you're having a conversation with someone and, and you find out there are seven. You're like, oh, you're a seven? On the Enneagram, oh yeah, I, that makes so much sense. I love sevens. I can tell now why you are the way you are because you're a seven on the Enneagram. Maybe, oh, you ride a Harley Davidson? Oh, that makes so much sense. You've probably got some Keith Urban socks as well. I know, in my mind, I've got a cue card for, for people who ride Harley Davidsons. In high school, you're in bands? Oh, right, yep, yep. I've got the band cue card, or, oh, you're a cheerleader. Okay, yep, yep, makes sense. I've got my uh, cheerleader cue card. Because all we need are a few cues and a few data points, and then we fill the rest in ourselves of the story about you. That's how it works, isn't it? But we do this with, with shallow things, like maybe someone's clothes or their car, their house or their hobbies. But the danger is, more and more, we can, we can do this, can't we, in our society with things like skin color or political party or religious belief, a relationship status, a sexual orientation, so much more. And straight away, we hear one thing, one, one data point, one thing, and, and our whole cue card is formed. Our brains start going, oh, I know this person. Think no more. I've got it from here. I know who they are and what they think, and I know what to think about them. 
And I think these kind of shortcuts can impact what could have been a very healthy relationship. Because here's the problem with our brain that's, that's working the way it's meant to work to create these, these narrative shortcuts in our mind. When we do it with relationships, we discover that narratives simplify what can't be simplified. Narratives simplify what shouldn't be simplified. When you reduce the people in your life to a set of cue cards, you can find yourself writing someone off simply because of something they said or something they did or a social media post that they liked. You're like, oh, you're one of those people. But the truth is, we are all a lot more complex than one set of narratives can measure. Every one of us, we're all unique. This last week, um, we were able to take some of our staff and leaders from the church to a conference, uh, a big nationwide conference for um, focusing on church planting, and it was a brilliant time together. And uh, this year in September will be our 10-year anniversary as a church. So uh, the organization that helped us start 10 years ago in 2013, they were at this conference, and uh, we got to go to a banquet that they put on, and they celebrated Connect and our, our upcoming 10-year anniversary. And it was just a great time to be away with the staff together and uh, get revitalized and excited about all that God is going to be doing in the future here in Washington through Connect. But one of the sessions I was sat in, there was a, uh, a panel up on the stage, and it was a small kind of breakout session, and people were texting in questions. And it was about the next generation and how can we as a church reach uh, the next generation effectively. And one of the guys in the room, he was very brave, very vulnerable. He, he was a pastor himself, maybe my age, a little bit younger. He texted this question, and he said, um, I'd like the panel to help me answer this question. My son um, has a lot of distrust for the church right now. He's grown up in the church. He's, he's grown up in my house as a, as a pastor's son. But because he's part of Generation Z, because he's part of Gen Z, he has this distrust for the church. How should I handle my relationship with my son? He doesn't want to go to church right now. How should I handle that relationship? So one of the speakers, he got up and he said, I want to try and answer that question. And I loved what he did because before he even tried to answer the question, he said this. He said, you are right. There are some um, attributes of this generation that are really struggling um, with the church right now. They have some distrust for the church. It's one of the, the hallmarks of this generation. He said, but I want you to, to look at your son and not think of him as part of that generation, but just think of him first and foremost as your son who's unique, who's different than everyone else in his generation. He said, because the danger is sometimes we can look at things and say, oh, well, they're like that because of this. My son's like this because he's part of this generation. And you jump to some conclusions that maybe you shouldn't have jumped to. He says, your son is completely unique. He has his own unique set of challenges, his own identity, his own thoughts and feelings. He said, the best advice I could give to you is rather than pressure your son to go to church, rather than keep, you know, um, giving, giving him pressure, just, just sit and listen to him. Hear his story. Listen to him. He says, you may be surprised how much of Jesus is at work in his life. And you won't know that unless you listen to him. But first and foremost, he said, let me gently challenge you here not to assume that because he's this generation, this is his problem. There are some attributes of that generation that are affecting him, but he is still unique. And I thought that was such great advice because we do this so often with the relationships in our life. Oh, no wonder you think this way. You're that kind of person. You grew up in that kind of family. 
You work in this industry. No wonder you think this way. You live in that kind of house. But none of us like it when someone does that to us, do we? None of us like it when someone puts us in a box because of something we've said or something we believe. So why would we do that to others? Because here's the challenge. When we put someone in a box and their box is very different than our box, we find, and this happens in just a split second, we're giving ourselves permission to disrespect, to insult, to ignore, to exclude, to mock, to devalue, to abandon, neglect, attack, rob, excommunicate, to disqualify, to pass over, to slander, to vilify, to make war with. These are all words that I just kept thinking, okay, yeah, this is what happens when we put someone in a box that looks different than us. It's like we give ourselves permission to behave in a way that, that if we're followers of Jesus, we should never behave this way. But we've created these narratives and we've set someone in this box and it changes the way we behave. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, none of those words I just listed are an option for us. Because we don't just follow the teachings of Jesus, we follow the example he set in how he treated people and how he saw people. You know, here at Connect, we're intentional in the way we do this. We, we talk a lot about how it's our desire that you would become a follower of Jesus. We'd love to see that happen. It's, it's changed so many of our lives and we'd love to see that change your life too. And you may have been at a church where you've heard people talk about how we'd love to see you become a Christian. And essentially, that's the same thing. But the reason we, we choose the words follower of Jesus over the words Christian is because a follower of Jesus has an, an action aspect to it. It's not just a decision I made to become a Christian. It's a decision I made to become a follower. That means that I'll be following. When I, when I accept Jesus to be the Lord of my life, it's not a one and done deal. There's a continual following going on. I'm gonna follow his teachings. And I hope that over the next years of my life, my life will change and I'll become more like him as I continue to follow him. And as I follow him in the direction he leads my life, I wanna follow his example as a human. When he lived on earth, I wanna follow the example that he set. And when it comes to our narratives and how we treat people who maybe look differently or think differently than us, he sets the bar really high on how we should be following because Jesus always operates outside the narratives. When you look at the life of Jesus in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those were the four guys who, who kind of gave us the account of the life of Jesus. When you read about Jesus, just a casual glance shows you that Jesus always operated outside of the narratives. Let me give you some examples. One day, Jesus met a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. Actually, he didn't meet him. He was up in a tree. And he comes along and there's this guy, Zacchaeus, up in a tree. Now, Zacchaeus was a tax collector and people back then despised tax collectors. I always chuckle when I say that because today people still don't like tax collectors much, okay? But, but back then, the reason they were so despised is because normally they were fellow Jews who were working for the Romans, the people who had them in captivity, and were using their position to, to cheat their fellow Jews out of money. They were getting rich using the power of the Roman uh, government and the soldiers to their benefit. So, so no one liked tax collectors. The narrative of the day is tax collectors, bad people. We don't like those people. But Jesus, when he walked on by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. 
Not just like, hey, I want to talk to you. I want to be a guest in your home. That's a huge thing. I want to experience your hospitality. Jesus changed the narrative in that moment. There was a time when a woman had been caught in the act of adultery and she was brought into the town square. And the law of the day said that because of her actions, she would be stoned to death. That was the narrative. So the crowd was saying to Jesus, come on, we need to stone her. You're not gonna say that it's wrong to do this, right? That's what the narrative said. And here's what Jesus said to the crowds that day. He stood up again and he said, all right, I get it. But how about this? Let the one who's never sinned, let the, the one in the crowd who's never done anything wrong themselves, how about you throw that first stone? Narrative changed. Jesus could have got along with the story that everyone else was saying, but Jesus changed the narrative and said, hey, let me explain how grace and mercy and forgiveness work. We could talk about the man with leprosy, who Jesus should have sent away from his presence, but instead, not only did he not send away, he touched him, he laid his hands on him and healed him. We could talk about the centurion, who Jesus should have turned away and rejected because he was a Roman soldier. But instead, Jesus healed a member of this Roman soldier's household. We could talk about the prostitute who Jesus should have kicked out of the house and judged. But instead, he let her wash his feet. In every situation when the narrative looked like it should be saying one thing, Jesus changed the story. Jesus changed the narrative. He always operated outside of our narratives, and he still does today. And here's why I believe Jesus behaved that way. Because Jesus came to cancel sin, not people. Jesus came to cancel sin, not people. I think it's our narratives today that have caused us to become this, this cancel culture that we hear about so much. We find ourselves just writing somebody off completely because we've created a cue card for them based on one thing that they may have said or done. Oh, you're that kind of, cancel. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? Jesus didn't do that. In fact, there is a great example of how one man's narrative changed when he came to meet Jesus, when he understood that Jesus didn't come to cancel, but to heal and to forgive and to show love. His name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus was this religious leader. He was a very strict Pharisee. And in John's account of Jesus' life, in John chapter three, we hear about how Nicodemus paid Jesus a visit. Because Nicodemus had a little bit of an idea as to who he thought Jesus was. But because of his religious standing in the community, because he was such a, an upright Pharisee, we actually learn that he came in secret. John 3, verse 2 says, after dark one evening, this is a guy who is sneaking in to see Jesus. This is somebody who wants to meet with Jesus, but doesn't want his fellow religious leaders knowing about it. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi. So he's not questioning Jesus. He's not challenging Jesus. He's acknowledging, hey, Rabbi, teacher, I believe you are who you claim to be. He says, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. This is huge for a Pharisee, a religious leader to say this because he's basically saying, I actually believe that you are who you claim to be. For hundreds of years, 
The Jewish people had believed that one day God was going to send uh, what he called the Messiah. They didn't really understand fully what that meant, but they did believe that this Messiah was going to come and he was going to rescue them. So when Jesus comes along, he starts to tell people that he is the Messiah. He's the man that God promised to send. And a lot of people didn't like it because they had this preconception of what they thought the the Messiah should be and should do and what he would look like. And, and they didn't think that Jesus fit that, that narrative, that idea they had. So many of them rejected Jesus. But Nicodemus, he knew enough about God and saw enough in Jesus that he believed that Jesus was who he said he was. And he says, your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. But his narrative of who God was affected his understanding of who Jesus was. So Jesus, in this conversation in John chapter three with Nicodemus, has to kind of explain some things of who he is and explain some things of who he isn't. He starts out in verse 16 in one of the most famous verses in the New Testament of helping Nicodemus understand who Jesus was and why he was there. Jesus says to Nicodemus, John three sixteen, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, that's me, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Nicodemus, that's why I'm here. Because God loves you so much. And he loves your friends. And he loves everyone in this community. And he loves everyone who's, who will come in the future. He loved them so much that he sent me, his one and only son. So that whoever believes in me will not perish. When they die, they will have eternal life in heaven with God because of me. So he helps Nicodemus understand who he is. But then, in the next verse, not as famous as John 3, 16, but a very important verse, because in that verse, he has to explain to Nicodemus who he wasn't. Listen to what he says in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Nicodemus, you need to understand this. God didn't send me to condemn mankind. No, no, no. God sent me to save mankind. God wants to save mankind through me. You see, Nicodemus, he had a narrative. He had an assumption. He assumed that because Jesus had come from God, that it meant that he must have come into the world to condemn people because that's what these, these holiness and godliness uh, group of Pharisees had in their mind about who God was. That was what their cue cards told them. This is how we should treat people. This is how we should behave. But Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus that God didn't come to cancel us. He came to cancel our sin. Every one of us this morning who's here, if you've made a decision to follow Jesus, if you're a Jesus follower here this morning, you and I, we should be so relieved this morning that when God came, it wasn't to condemn and to cancel us. It was to forgive us, to love us. That's why he came. Because we were never going to be able to do enough good in our own strength. So he came. He died in our place. In a few weeks' time, we're going to have a baptism service. These are one of my favorite services. Because if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, if you've been baptized, you'll, you'll relate to the verse that, that Paul speaks to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. Those words are so powerful. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. That, that applies to any of us this morning. 
We all have that invitation. We are all invited to come and have a relationship with Jesus. And when we make that decision, when we choose to allow Jesus to be the Lord of our lives, the old life is gone, the new life has begun. And the people who are going to be baptized, you'll get to hear stories and you'll get to see people right here on this stage two weeks from today going into the water and coming out. Because what they're doing is, is they've made a, a private decision to follow Jesus. They, they've come to this place in their life where they've chosen to, to turn their lives around, to follow Jesus, to live differently. But they don't want it to remain just a private thing between them and God alone. They've decided we want to go public with our decision. We want everyone to know that we are followers of Jesus. So when we get baptized, it is a public declaration of a private decision. And this public declaration, as I go into the water, is the old life is gone. As I come up out of the water, a new life has begun. And if you're here this morning and you've not yet taken that step, maybe you've not taken the step to follow Jesus, I'd love to challenge you to, to take that step today. Maybe you have taken that step to follow Jesus, but you've yet to decide to be baptized. We have a sign-up sheet out there for more information. Sign up today after the service. We'd love to see you baptized with us two weeks from now. You might say this morning, well, Dave, I was baptized as a baby. And that's great. But, you know, here at Connect, we actually don't do uh, baby baptism because we believe that baptism should be a decision that we make ourselves when we understand what it is we're doing and why we're doing it. You had no say in that when you were a baby. So maybe now as an adult in a place where you've made this decision to follow Jesus, you want to say, Jesus, I know I was baptized as a baby, but I know nothing about that. I want the world to know, I want my friends and friends to know that my public declaration is I'm going to decide to be baptized. And you'll make that decision to be baptized in a couple of weeks. You'll follow God and be baptized. The great news is that every one of us can make that decision. Any one of us here this morning can come to Jesus and make the decision to follow him. And do you know why? Because Jesus died for everyone. Jesus died for everyone. He died for you. He died for me. When he came, when God sent his son, as John 3.16 said, it was for everyone so that no one will perish and all can have everlasting life. But back to this idea of emotionally healthy relationships, how we should treat one another, how we should work against these narratives in our mind that can cause barriers and blockades between people who maybe don't fit into the same box as us. If we want to experience emotionally healthy relationships, we need to realize it's not just that Jesus died for everyone. We need to think about this. Jesus died for everyone, which is why he asks us that we love everyone. Jesus died for everyone. All that he asks in return is that we love everyone. Even those who, when we pull up their cue card in our mind, looks a lot different than ours. We're still to love those people. We're still to, to work hard at breaking down the narratives that we've put in our mind. You see, Jesus says, you want to know why I treat people differently than you? It's because I see people differently than you. We see evidence of that in the New Testament with the people he spoke to who others wouldn't speak to. Where you see a narrative, Jesus says, I see a new beginning. So why don't you drop your narratives and come see what I see? 
Why don't you drop your narratives, push them aside, and come see what I see. Your brain is doing what it's meant to do. It's creating shortcuts. It's working to, to make life easier. But sometimes we've got to work against those shortcuts. Because shortcuts work with steak and Brussels sprouts. Shortcuts shouldn't work with the people in our lives. We shouldn't have those shortcuts. We should be saying everyone is unique. Everyone is different. So here's a practical challenge that I want to send you all away with this week. Over the last few weeks, we've tried to come up with some practical challenges each week with each topic that we've, we've kind of covered in this idea of emotionally healthy relationships. The first week, we were talking about the power of words. So the, the, uh, the homework I gave you to go away was, was try and give five life-giving words for every one negative word. We tend to, to easily come out with some negative things. So, so let's work harder on making sure that for every one negative, we're looking to give five positives, five words of encouragement. Because that's the kind of ratio, as followers of Jesus especially, we should be striving for in our lives. Last week, the challenge I sent you away with, we need help from Jesus to do this, but we need to eliminate the grudge by choosing to forgive. We need to eliminate the grudges in our life, the walls that we've built, by choosing to forgive. Because conflict creates grudges and grudges create walls. We need to eliminate those by choosing to forgive if we want to experience emotionally healthy relationships. And today, here's what I want to challenge you with. In one arena of your life, just one relationship, get to know their story. Listen. Listen. Like the guy at that conference challenged that dad. Just, just listen. Because the more we hear of someone's story, the harder it is to reduce them to a narrative. It'll keep us from categorizing them and putting them in a box and reducing them to just a cue card in our minds. And what it'll do is it'll help us see people the way Jesus sees people. Let's not be the barrier between somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus and Jesus because of our narratives that have caused a block there. We may be the person who helps this person come to Jesus.